if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to join me in John chapter 3. John 3, we're going to be starting our time in verse 16, probably one of the most familiar verses of our passages of Scripture in the Bible, Uh, clearly one of the most familiar verse in the Bible, uh, as in John 3.16 that we'll be uh, looking at today. And uh, if you will take the notes that are in the weekly bulletin, the bulletin that was placed in your hand, uh, there's some notes there that you can help you to uh, track with us and and, and walk through that. Once again, our theme, our our uh, mindset is that whatever we, re- we receive, we should reproduce, and so we should be re- reproducing the Word of God in other people. That's what uh, being a disciple-maker is, that we should be teaching others to, uh, to uh, observe all that Jesus did and taught, and so that's exactly what we're out to accomplish here. And so we want to be able to study with a desire to know and to learn and to grow and with our, in our Savior, knowledge of our Savior, and then to help others to be able to come to a saving faith in Christ. And so if you have uh, that bulletin, I encourage you to take it out. And you'll follow along. There will be notes on the screen behind me and some fill-in-the-blanks to aid you in that time. And so that's exactly what we want to accomplish. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 21. And just from the very onset, let me just uh, communicate very clearly. Uh, I am not going to finish uh, outline today. There was five major points. Um, and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, tell you I'm going to land the plane early. So we're going to finish the first major point. Uh, in this case, you'll see in the notes, it's got a couple of uh, sub points there, and that's all we're going to try to accomplish today is, is that you'll see why in just a moment. So, uh, and I will also tell you uh, that this is not the time to be uh, checking out. So, uh, the, what we're about to cover today is going to tread a little a little deeper than we're, uh, we're we tread pretty deep anyway, but we're going to tread even a little deeper than we normally tread. So, we've lowered the plow a little bit deeper to dig up a little bit more information uh, for us to be able to uh, utilize it today. So, I want us to be able to think through that and walk through that uh, today. So. And with that is, uh, that mindset is exactly why I wanted to take some time and think through uh, where we're going and how we're beginning to walk through this. And in this particular passage, I think it's so familiar to us that we overlook some of the major themes that are there, some of the things that's just glaring at us if we were to take some time to really look at it and begin to think through uh, responses and how we respond to others and what are our responses to other people? And do those responses demonstrate, what do those responses demonstrate? It's exactly what Pastor Tim was leading us in this morning to discuss, is that our heart or the inner person, our thoughts, our will, desires, those things that's on the inside of us, not just a, not, it's not speaking of the physical organ, but of what causes us to respond the way we do is based upon what's ruling our inner man, right? It's what we're actually living for. And that's the transformation that takes place that is identified with in baptism is that uh, where I used to rule and reign over all of the decisions that I make, that I'm not looking to anyone outside of myself uh, for aid, for instruction, for their glory. I'm simply looking out for my own glory, for my own desires, for my own wants, my own passions, that ultimately that something happens, something changes in me. And that's exactly what we were talking about last week with the new birth, that we were born from above. And so that's where we want us just to spend some time today. And so with this particular passage, I want us just to be, that to be the backdrop for us to be looking at and thinking through that, uh, uh, well, at the very end, and that's where we're going to be ended up our time probably next week, is just to be able to say, well, how does a person know if they've truly been born again? Well, how does well, the decisions that we make, what does it reveal about us and demonstrate uh, about who we really are and who we are really living for? So let me dive into the text. We've got a lot to ground to cover today. John chapter 3, verse 16. And if you're new with us and 
Uh, we're reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, there's some white Bibles that are paperback Bibles in the chair in front of you or near you. And uh, if you don't have an ESV and you prefer this translation, even as you're walking through this with us, uh, that can be a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to be able to take that Bible home with you as long as you read it and study it. So that's what we would want for, for you to be able to take those with you. So you can join us as we look at John three sixteen. So 16 through 21, let me read those. We'll pray and then we'll dive right in. So John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you asking you to do the work that only you can. We pray that you would illuminate the words of these pages and may it bring understanding and clarity to our lives. We pray that your word would bear fruit in our lives, that, Lord, that we, for those who are already believers, that, Lord, we would continue to be conformed into the image of your Son, a process that we call sanctification, that we would be uh, continually uh, dying to ourself and submitting to you, and that, Lord, that you would be transforming us as we renew our minds, that in your word, that, that Lord, you would help us to discern what is your good, perfect, and acceptable will. And, Lord, we would not be molded to the very look of this world, but, Lord, we'd be molded to your kingdom. And so, Father, we ask that, that would be the case for those in this room who are Christians and for those who are not believers. Father, we ask that they would be born again today. They would be born from above, that, Lord, where they were not in any way uh, attributed any aid to their natural birth, I pray that today... And any attempts of their own self-righteousness, that, Lord, they would be born from above because of your sovereign work. And as a result, Lord, they would be transformed. Their heart and their, in the inner man, those allegiances, those desires would be for you. Where before they were unresponsive, they were dead. And they would love you and they would long to obey you. They long to know about you. And, Lord, with that would come a desire for the word, a desire for the body, those uh, other believers in their life that would aid them and encourage them, a desire to share the truth, to transform them with others. They would have a desire for the lost, for the unsaved, and that, Lord, that they would persist. And, Lord, they would not fall away. And so, God, I pray that you would aid that this morning, knowing that it is not anything I can do, nor it is a sheer work of your, your grace. And so we ask for that. So, Lord, aid uh, me this morning. And Lord, we take a great confidence that your word will not return null or void. It will accomplish what you please it to accomplish. And that's why we desire to stay in it and only and underneath it, Lord. And so may you be glorified and may we worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, as I told you, John three sixteen, one of the most familiar passages in the scriptures. Uh, you'll see it behind um, 
field goals and goal posts all along the sporting events. You'll see it at a variety of other types of activities where people are desiring to what many have called the gospel in a nutshell, a gospel in a single verse uh, as far as John 3.16. But in that, there's much that comes before it and much that comes after it. And for, uh, for sake of time, I'm not going to catch you up to speed on all that we've been covering from John chapter 1 and 2 and then at the beginning of John 3. But I do want to at least give you some background so you understand where we're at in the context of this particular message and what has transpired up to this point. If you'll back up just a little bit, maybe on the same page or the, the previous page, in John chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus has just come onto the scene, meaning that he is, uh, his ministry has now become outward. Uh, he'd been baptized by John the Baptist. He's went to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And now he's returned, and now he's beginning to gather his disciples to him. And as a result of that, he's made his way down to Jerusalem for the very first Passover. He's cleansed the temple. And while he's there at the Passover, you see in verse 23 to 25 of chapter 2, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So Jesus has performed a variety of signs. We know what many of those signs were based on uh, other New Testament uh, accounts, but ultimately he would be healing the diseased and he would be um, casting out demons. And he would be doing a variety of other uh, miraculous works. He'd already, in the, the previous section of John chapter 2, had um, turned the water into wine at uh, a wedding in Canaan. So he's doing a variety of signs. And so many believed in him and that he was able to do mighty feats, that he was different than others. Many believed that he was probably a prophet or that he was some amazing teacher, that ultimately God had endowed certain gifts upon him. But they did not believe that he was God. They did not believe that he may have been the, the long-awaited Messiah, that he could have been, but that's not exactly who they were trusting in him to be. And that's why in verse 24 it says, But Jesus, on his part did not entrust, or it can be translated believe, uh, did not believe uh, or entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That speaks of his omniscience. He not only could just see the outward, but he knew the inward, right? So he knew what was going on. It's like when we were talking about Nathaniel several weeks ago and that he not only knew where Nathaniel was, but what Nathaniel was thinking. And so this is exactly what the omniscient God can do. And so here you see that people had a superficial faith in him that was not a saving faith. It was not a faith that they were, they were denying themselves and submitting to his lordship over their lives. They were just looking at him as he was somebody who was great, somebody who could do things that other people could not do, and ultimately he was somebody they should be looking to that maybe he had additional information. He might be a prophet, and they were longing for this Messiah to come, and so maybe he had some information about that, and so they were believing in him in that way, but it was not saving faith. This is why Jesus did not entrust himself. They believed in him. He did not believe in them because he knew that their faith was spurious. And so these individuals had an insufficient faith. They understood and believed certain facts about Jesus, but not saving faith. Therefore, Jesus did not entrust himself or believe or have faith in them. He didn't need anyone to bear witness to him about others. He didn't need anyone to share a testimony or give him more information about others, about man in general, because he knew what was in man. This very morning, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, as he's interceding for believers, knows what is in you. He knows what you're thinking this very moment. He knows what you, how you were behaving on your trip to, the, uh, to this gathering this morning. He knew the things that you've been thinking all, all this week. He knows the secret sins that no one else knows that you hope no one ever finds out about. Jesus knows it all. And the encouragement with that is that even in that, yeah, that could be discouraging in some ways, and we should be uh, mindful of the fact that we can't hide anything from him. But then the encouraging thing is that the Bible says that though 
uh, we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's all of our testimony. All of us have things that we wish no one would ever find out about. Have desires that we were constantly trying to crucify and to kill. And so ultimately, these are the things that is true about us. But yet at the same time, God made a provision for us and that Jesus can redeem and save us. And so this is what we find. And so it's in this, in a general way, what this previous passage, John 2, 23, 25, described generally about a host of people is now going to become the narrative to describe personally about a ruler of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. That's where we picked up last week. And so I want to just be able to just very briefly just explain what's going on because this is in this context, verses 1 through 15 is what we're going to pick up in verse 16. And it's in this where Jesus is teaching. So we want to just bypass this and not know what's taking place in the previous verses. And so it's at this particular point, remember Jesus knows all things. He knows what's in man, that where Nicodemus shows up. And it says, there was a man of the Pharisees, John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We talked about what that was, uh, what type of person he was. He was a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jerusalem. is about 70 members, 71 if you include the high priest. And so ultimately he knew the law, meaning the Old Testament. He was a scholar at that particular time. Verse 10 says he was the teacher of Israel. So he was uh, very well uh, uh, respected. He would be one of the rabbis to be able to be in that area. One of the, the rabbis just means uh, master or teacher. And so they were, he was very well known. And so in this he would have been following the traditions that were being handed down uh, from, from, uh, in Judaism that literally was making and was, uh, had been evolved into an um, apostate religion, right? So if you think about this, it would be that you're following a bunch of rules that were man-made rather than the, the commands that God had actually laid forth, and this is exactly what was taking place. And so Jesus uh, knows things about Nicodemus because, why? the previous verses had just talked about that generally, and now I was going to drive in to talk about this personally with an individual. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that's master, teacher, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, there it is. Definition of what just taken place in John chapter 2, verse 23 and 25, right? They had certain facts that they believed about Jesus, but they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't believe Jesus is God in the flesh. And this is what's, what's spurious, what's uh, superficial. It means they did not have enough information that would be saving faith. And so they believed that he was somebody important because who can do the signs that he can do? Who can do these miracles if God isn't aiding him? And this would be exactly what we would describe, how we would describe previous prophets, right? No one believed Moses was God, but they believed that God was with Moses. God was aiding Moses because God's the one who gave him the signs to be able to do. Same thing with Elijah or Elisha or the other prophets that had come before them. Ultimately, there were signs that accompanied them to, to set them apart so individuals would pay attention. Pay attention to his message because why? He's doing things that not everyone can do. And so pay attention to that, right? And so this is what they believed about Jesus, that it was a superficial or spurious faith that was, that was not true saving faith. And this is important because why? This is, we're not talking about an individual who is, who is like irreligious. We're not talking about an individual who like hates God. We're not talking about an atheist. We're not talking about anybody who is going to be uh, an antagonist uh, to the things of God, and at least in a general way. So picture would be for us would be individuals who would come to church regularly who had grown up in church and, and kind of knew that ultimately you sing a song and then you maybe have a greeting time or there might be a baptism and a couple of songs and there's an offering. And we kind of know the system. We might go to a Sunday school class. You might go to uh, Wednesday night activities and you might be a part of scripture memorization and Bible memorization. 
and, and you're following through with a lot of the works that were associated with it. But ultimately, you're doing those things because that's what you were told to do. It's what you were taught to do and that your heart wasn't genuinely there. Well, all of us know that in that type of mindset, type of living, that ultimately that creates in us uh, some angst. Because why? We know the real us, right? You know the real you. I know the real me. And ultimately, that we know if we're not genuinely trusting the Lord many times, that we're not that we're anxious about things when we should not be, and we're not living the way that we should live. And I believe this is exactly what Nicodemus is, is, is happening here. It's why I believe he came to be able to hear from Jesus. That listen, I know I'm a ruler of the Jews. I know that people are coming to me for answers. But here's the reality. I don't have all the answers. I don't know if I can shake this. That Man, I, I'm not certain. What, there's all these rules I'm supposed to keep, and I'm supposed to keep all these rules. I don't, what if I don't keep them all perfectly? And maybe, just maybe, this teacher that's arrived on the scene, this Jesus, who can do all these amazing signs, maybe he can give me some additional information that will help quiet my heart, that help appease my conscience. Now, once again, what does the previous passage say? That Jesus knows what's in man. He's no one to tell him what's in man. He's able to determine what's real faith and what's genuine faith, right? And so in, in verse 3 or verse 2, it says, Rabbi, we know that you're come from God. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. And so in, in John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't interact with any of the, his comments, right? Jesus didn't say, well, hey, I, I appreciate that you think those things about me. No, Jesus is reading him like a book. His heart, his inner man is laid bare. And Jesus is addressing things that's really on his heart and mind. He says, ultimately, you want to see the kingdom of God? You want to see it? Right? You're a teacher of it. But you want to see it? You must be born again. Nicodemus now can't quite figure that out. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So clearly he doesn't understand what that means. Being born again, being born, literally translates being born from above. So something needs to happen to you or you're not going to see the kingdom. Now, for Nicodemus, this would be unbelievably troubling. And it should be, on, to some level, troubling for you and I this morning. Because what does this tell you? You can't make yourself be saved. Anyone who can tell you or tells you, hey, let me give you the steps that you can take in order to be born from above, do not listen to them. We cannot attribute to our our, our spiritual birth any more than we could attribute to our physical birth. How much did you uh, attribute to your own physical birth? None, right? You were conceived uh, by your mom and dad, right? Uh, and there was a, a physical interaction there. It was a chemical interaction, but there was a spiritual thing that happened there. The Bible says that we were, uh, cre- we were wonderfully made in the inward parts by God himself. He's the one who crafted us in the womb. He's the one who uh, allowed us to be born. He's the one who opens and closes the womb, as the Bible would teach us. And so ultimately, God is the one who allowed us to come alive in the womb, and he's the one who's going to bring us forth from the womb. And this is all by God and from God. And this is why Jesus chooses this way to explain being born from above, the, the new life that's created in us, is because he's trying to target a person who wants to live his own life according to his rules, according to man-made rules, and he wants to be able to communicate to him, you can't save yourself. I have four children, and I long for the day where there is great confidence in me that all four of my children are born again. But here's what I realize. I cannot make that happen. 
I could pressure them. I can manipulate them. I could be coercive. I can do a variety of things. I can bribe them, right? If you memorize the whole book of John, I'll buy you a car, right? Many of you would be like, I'll do that. I will take you up on that offer, right? But I can do a variety of things to bribe my children to do a variety of things. And yes, I want the word of God in them. I do. I I teach them the word of God. But ultimately, here's what I understand about this particular passage. God is the one who's in control over salvation, not myself. And I can be manipulative, and I can be coercive, and I I can bribe them. But when I do those things, it's not helpful. Right? Because where should my, my time and energies be put forth? In trusting the Lord and doing things the way he's prescribed me to do them because he is the one who is sovereign. He's the one who rules and reigns over this particular work. And so Jesus is targeting the very thing. Here's a man who spent his entire life walking the, the religious ladder up to be able to say to the point where he's reached the pinnacle and yet there's a nagging, suspicious desire in him that says, I don't know if I'm genuinely saved. And Jesus reads him like a book and says, let's get to the heart of the matter. You're here to see me tonight because you don't know if you're going to see the kingdom. And so he walks in through that. And so now Nicodemus is perplexed. Well, how? I don't understand what you're saying. Like, I'm a grown man. You're a grown person. How do we, like, enter in our mom's womb uh, now that we're, like, big people, right? I don't understand this. And so this, listen to Jesus' response, verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and a spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he said, now you won't see it. In verse 3, now you won't enter it unless you're now, and he's going to give a synonym for being born again. You're born of water and the spirit. We talked very briefly about that last week. Simply all that is communicating. There's a spiritual renewal. There's a cleansing that takes place spiritually. Uh, this isn't speaking of a amniotic fluid in the womb and that ultimately you're physically born and then you're born uh, from the Spirit. This is talking about a cleansing that takes place, uh, that ultimately you're cleansed from your uncleanness, the Bible says. You're being cleansed from your idols. Ezekiel chapter 36 walks through this uh, uh, in its entirety. We spent a whole sermon on that last week. But ultimately, we are cleansed from our idols, from our idol worship. And ultimately, that we're, our heart's been transformed. He's taken out a heart of stone. All that simply means is just like this podium. I can hit this podium. I can throw this podium, and the podium will not respond. It has no feelings, no emotions. It is unresponsive. And the Bible says that speaks of our heart being dead like a stone. It is unresponsive to the things of God. You can preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, but that alone is not enough. Their heart needs to be taken, that heart of stone needs to be taken out, and a heart of flesh, and it doesn't speak of the negative moral aspect of it, where like deeds done in the flesh as it refers to the New Testament. It's not talking about evil type things. It's simply speaking of like my physical flesh, right? There are bones and tendons and sinew and muscle all underneath my skin, and my skin is not unresponsive. It's not hard and, un, and unmovable. My skin can move, and it's, it's, it is pliable, and it works in conjunction with my bones, right? Well, that's what the Bible is saying. We need to take out that unresponsive heart, that dead heart, that stony heart, and put in a heart that's, that's responsive to the Bible. And he says, I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and my commandments, meaning that you will want the things of God, and you will obey the things of God. And this is exactly what Nicodemus doesn't understand. God's going to form uh, a, a change on the inside. He's going to change him from the inside out, where Nicodemus has been trying to live the righteous life on his own by following rules and trying to be a perfectionist. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to see the kingdom and you're not going to enter the kingdom. There's no hope for you. Something outside of you needs to happen to you. Something needs to be done to you if you're going to respond. And this is truly revolutionary for him. So if you want to write that down, if you weren't here, you are going to go back. That would be Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27. 
And, it's in, and that's where it talks about the water and the spirit being used in conjunction. That's why he says there, being born again, is you must be born of water and the spirit. And then verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Now, speaking of that's born, uh, that's fleshly, it's not going to be helped. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And now here it is. Once again, if you thought there was any hope that you could do anything to save yourself, listen to the analogy in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You want to cause yourself to be born again? You want to cause yourself to enter the kingdom? You want to cause yourself to be able to see the kingdom and enter it? It's like causing the wind to blow. Now, can you harness the wind when it blows? Sure, sailboats do it all the time. Windmills do it all the time. But can you make the wind blow? No, you cannot. Can you see the wind blowing? Occasionally, yes. The effects of the wind, you begin to see it. But ultimately, we have no control over it. And this is exactly what Jesus is striking at. Here's a man, once again, who's lived his entire life trying to earn his own righteousness before God. And Jesus says, you are hopeless and helpless apart from something happening to you. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And imagine that for just a moment. I could address you this morning. I've lived my whole life trying to be pleasing to my parents, trying to be pleasing to my employers, trying to be pleasing to my spouse, trying to be uh, a great parent, trying to please my neighbors or my friends, or trying to please the, my, my, my group that I hang out with. I've been trying to live for everyone else this whole time because why? I don't want to be shown as a fraud. And ultimately, as I walk my whole life, I just think, man, I've worked and strived and, and tried very, very hard. And ultimately, all that was for naught? There's nothing I can do? How can these things be? Listen to Jesus. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? That's why we know it was coming from the Old Testament. That's why I could take you to Ezekiel chapter 36. How could Jesus say that? How can you be a teacher of Israel and not know these things? He's saying, dude, it's in the Old Testament. And we walked through a myriad of verses last week that walking through where we saw this, this teaching in the Old Testament. Verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen. And then listen to this but you do not receive our testimony. He's saying that I, the disciples who were with me, John the Baptist, we've been telling you about this stuff, right? We bear witness to the things that we've encountered, and yet you don't believe us. That's why he's saying, once again, it's a picture of John chapter 2, verse 23. You believe in me, certain aspects of me, but not that you're willing to entrust yourself to me, not that you believe that I'm truly God, you're willing to sell everything, you're willing to, to relinquish everything, all of your religious activity, all of your, your desires, all of your possessions, and to be able to say, none of that means anything to me. I just need you. I need someone to save me from myself. He says, but you do not receive our testimony. And if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I'm trying to give you an illustration about physical birth that you should pick up on instantaneously. And it's blowing your mind and you can't figure it out. How are you going to understand spiritual things? And this is the heart of where we're at, right? This is the heart of what's taking place because this is, is, is really interesting as we walk through that the, this insufficient faith that he has is not enough to save him. He's still not willing because why? He's been living his whole life that I, I, need, I need to do something. I can do something to change my whereabouts. And where is that for us as Americans? This is exactly what we've been taught since we we're little kids. The American dream. You can make something out of yourself. 
You can overcome any obstacle. You can have it your way. It can be however you want it to be. You just, you just believe and it's going to be enough. And here's what Jesus is saying. It's not just enough to believe. You need something to happen to you. Because he was believing certain aspects, but it wasn't enough. And the things that he needed to believe, he wouldn't. He says, no, verse 13, no one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And there's an imagery, remember I told you, where they, had, uh, they were idolaters in the Old Testament. And they were worshiping other things. And they were, at this particular time, in Numbers chapter 21, they were complaining. Right? That's why it's not good to complain. Right? They were complaining. They were discontent with what Jesus had provided for them. They said, you took us out of Egypt. And, now you, and there was all these amazing miracles that God had done on their behalf. Right? And once again, it's a picture of John 2, 23 to 25. They saw God do amazing feats in their presence, right? Water to blood and, and the staff to a serpent and, and the leprous hand. And they saw all ten of the plagues. And they ultimately saw the, the parting of the Red Sea. And they were able to navigate through the pillar of cloud, led them by day, and a pillar of fire by night. Quail from heaven, water from a rock, manna from heaven. It was just amazing feats of things that God has done. And here they are complaining. I don't want this miserable bread any longer. I'm tired of this bread. Upon which they didn't have to work for at all. And yet, and yet, they were complaining. And because of that discontentedness, God sent a curse. And the curse was fiery serpents. It was serpents that would, would snakes that would bite them. And upon biting them, they would, poisonous snakes that would kill them. And the people began to cry out. Numerous people had died. And so people began to cry out. They began to realize they'd sinned against God and they sinned against Moses, his prophet. Complaining about both. And so Moses, they said, go pray to God that he would take these serpents away. Take this curse away from us. And so G- Moses goes up and he prays. And what does God tell him to do? Erect a pole and put a serpent around it, right? And there were people come and they, by, my, by faith and my word, they go, go to this pole. When they, once they've been bitten, go to this pole. They look at the very curse itself. They might be forgiven. And by looking at the pole, even though they've been bitten and they should die, they may live. Now, was the work there? Was it, was it some kind of a works-based uh, righteousness there where you have to go look at something? No, it was by faith. They were trusting in this word because why? Physical venom is in their, is in their body and they should die immediately. And you're telling me the way, to, the way I, I fix that is just go look at this pole? That demonstrated faith in God's word. And by that faith, it demonstrated that they truly trusted God. And so those who were bitten could go to the pole and look at it. Once again, just to tell you how much the Bible has in it, had an impact even all the way back to Numbers 21. Have you looked at an ambulance lately? You look at an ambulance, it'll have a pole with what? A serpent wrapped around it. When you look at that, you go, hey, wherever that is, that can help me. Because why? It's going to aid me, right? It can help me when I'm sick. It can help me when I'm hurting. It can help me when I'm about to die. And so they picked up on the symbolism there from that very passage. Now, here's the key. Here's the question. So then it says, if so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So in a similar way, it says that the Son of Man, he's just speaking of himself in third person. Ultimately, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be the curse. The curse is everyone who hangs upon a tree, the Bible says in the Old Testament. And Jesus is going to hang literally on a cross made out of wood, made out of a tree. And that when people look at the curse of sin upon him, they may look to him and live. That's what we trust in today. Not by our own works, but we're looking to Christ. And by looking to him, we live. Because why? By faith, we're trusting in his finished work on, our, on, on the cross on our behalf. That there's a curse. We've been cursed with the curse of sin. We deserve to die that death. But ultimately, by looking at that, we may live. Same principle that's taking place here by, uh, in Numbers 21. By faith, 
You're going you're gonna to trust in Christ, and Christ is going to save you. So Jesus is giving him the gospel. Now, here's where it gets interesting. This is where we're going to dive into our notes here in just a second. Verse 15. He's talking about Jesus being lifted up. The serpent was lifted in the middle of the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And here it is. That purposeful clause. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, here just begs some important questions. These are the questions we're going to try to answer over the next two weeks. But I, I want us just to think through this. Now, here's maybe questions that you should be asking yourself. Or if not, maybe it's a question you have asked yourself and you're going, dude, pastor, that resonates with me. Here's what it says. First question. How does a person know if they have been born again? How do they know that? If that's what's required, it's nothing I can do in order to save myself. If this is something that happens to me, how do I know if it's happened to me? I don't know if I've been born again. Why feel it? Why look different? Why glow at nighttime? That would be a really easy indicator, right? You're glowing. Oh, it's happened, right? Why glow during the dark, right? Oh, I become water resistant, right? My hair never gets wet. Like, what? Is there some kind of an outward sign? So, how would a person know that they've been born again? And number two, second question: How does various various passages of scripture? that communicate that whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life correlate to the new birth. Now think about that just for a moment. This is where it gets really interesting. Why well, I want to take some time to just help you massage this a little bit. Why well, I was like, oh, we're not going to go any deeper than point one. Think about it for a second. Jesus just gave an illustration to Nicodemus and said that you can't save yourself. You've lived your entire life climbing up the religious corporate ladder, trying to gain assurance that you're going to go to heaven when you die. There's a whole elaborate system that's been put in place, and y'all have added uh, additional laws to that to try to keep you from ever breaking laws. And ultimately, what your sinful heart's done is you've circumvented all the real, the real issues, the difficult issues to be able to think through. You've not actually targeted your heart at all. It's all been behavior modification. And he says, so in this, this is supposed to be something that happens to me. For one, how do I know if it's happened to me? And then number two, how does this correlate? He just got through his, out of his mouth, Jesus did, that you must, something must happen to you, that no, you can't contri- attribute to your own physical birth in any way, and so therefore you can't attribute to your own spiritual birth in any way. But then he tells him in the very next breath, but you must believe. So which is it? Am I believing in order to be saved? Or am, am I being born again in order to be saved? And there's, there's the parallels that walk. And this is what I want to take you some time to teach through. So, what we're trying to think through is into what's the, what should be the, the response that we should have, right? Biblical responses to the gospel. How should we respond? And so your first point in your notes there, the requirement for a biblical response upon hearing the gospel. The Bible places a requirement upon us, not in any attempt to earn or merit salvation, hear me clearly, but there is a condition, there is a requirement for, uh, that, that we, there should be a biblical response in hearing or upon hearing the gospel. And it's what verse 16 tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, purposeful calls that, here's the requirement, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So what we saw in verse 15, right? This is Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That, purposeful calls, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Back-to-back verses. Don't you find it interesting, though, that these two verses that are conditional upon salvation, that many times would lead us to a works-based type of thinking, is on the heels of Jesus just teaching, there's nothing you can do. 
There's nothing you can do to merit your own salvation. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. But, at the same time, he says, but whoever believes gets heaven, gets eternal life. How do you square those two? And this is why I said you need to have your thinking caps on because this is where it gets a little deep. But I wanted to point these out to you because they're right there. What's right there? Here's your, here goes your notes. Two fundamental doctrines of the faith are right there. Two fundamental doctrines of the faith are side by side. And most often through Scripture, these two fundamental doctrines I'm about to tell you are side by side. Right there. And I'm going to give you a myriad of verses. And I'm just going to tell you up front. And I'm going, to, I'm going to load your wagon with a lot of verses there. And so you can try to write them down. But if you want a copy of my handwritten, or not handwritten, but my typed out manuscript, I will send them to you just to help you with this process. But I'm just going to tell you, there are two doctrines here that are constantly throughout Scripture that I want us to help us think through and walk through that helps us to see this. If we're going to talk about biblical responses to the gospel, how does a person know that they've been born again? How does these passages of Scripture communicate that whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life correlate with the new birth? Then we need to know how they, how they work. How does this, the responses happen? Because if not, could we be like Nicodemus and do we believe aspects of who Jesus is and aren't truly Christians? And the world is full of false converts. That was similar to Matthew's testimony, but did not see the other side of that, where he was truly born again at a later date. Truly, his eyes had been opened, his heart had been transformed, and he loves Jesus. That They have a, a baptism on their early years that hasn't genuinely represent the person they are today. I have family members. I'll tell you who they are, because they may listen to my uh, podcast, and I don't want to be talking necessarily about them, but I've, I've seen pictures Family members who were young, who were being baptized. And over the last, and when they were just little, little tykes, and over the last 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 years, lived a life completely contrary to the things of God. No desire for the word, no desire for the body of Christ, no desire to share the gospel, no desire to embrace the gospel, no desire to, to study the word, no desire to live out the one another commands with a faith family, no desire to share the gospel with the lost. How does this square with them? Because they'll tell you, man, I, I believe in who Jesus is. I believe that he's the son of God that came to die for my sins. And believe me, he needs to die for my sins because there are many. But have they been born again? So these two fundamental doctrines are important to us. And I want to show them to you. One, the first one is divine sovereignty. Divine sovereignty, meaning God is sovereign over salvation. Remember last week when we were, we were studying through Ezekiel and we saw all the personal pronouns I? Remember that? There was, I think there was at least seven personal pronouns of I. I will take you out of this land. I will bring you back and I will, I will wash you with water. Now I will cleanse you from all your idols. And I will take out the heart of stone. And I will put in a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and my commandments. Thus says the Lord. Who did all that work? God did. I, 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 I will do all those things to you. That's a picture of the new birth. And this is exactly what it talks about in John 3 that we just read. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But the very illustration itself is something we can't participate in. That was in verse uh, 3. Then again in verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. That's exactly what I walked you through out of Ezekiel. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you're not going to see it. You're not going to enter it unless these things are happening to you. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So ultimately we need the spirit to be at work within us. It's not anything we can do in our own flesh and by our own works. 
Verse uh, 7, do not marvel that I said you must be born again. And ultimately gives the illustration in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Ultimately, it's God who's the one who's doing the work in us. And this is exactly what John 1, 12 and 13 started with when he opened up his gospel. John the Apostle says, verse 12 of John 1, But to all who did receive him, received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, once again, here you see it. You've got to believe in his name. And if you believe in his name, you'll be given the right to become children of God. Here's a response. But then listen to the very next phrase, verse 13. Who were born not of blood, right? Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not anything that you did by your own power, right? Not anything you've done by the, the power of others or religious system. It's by what God has done, but of God in this. And so, but you see divine sovereignty working. But just as I showed you in, in verses uh, 1 through uh, 8 about divine sovereignty, then you see the second fundamental doctrine of the faith, human responsibility. That we as humans are responsible. There's human responsibility here. And that's where in verse uh, uh, 11 and following, you begin to see the human responsibility side coming out. Verse 11, truly true, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You don't believe. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And it goes all the way to verse 15, where it says, or verse 14, where it says, the Son of Man must be lifted up in the wilderness like uh, the serpent. And in verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here you have them, just like it was in John 1, 12 and 13. Verse 12 was walking through um, uh, man's re- uh, human responsibility. Verse 13, but ultimately see that it's not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see then God's divine sovereignty over salvation. We see it exactly the same way in this particular passage. In verses 1 through uh, 10, you see ultimately God's sovereignty over salvation. But then in the latter verses, 11 through 15, you see man or human responsibility in salvation. Well, which is it? It's both. It's both. Listen to these. I'm just going to give you a variety of verses. We're going to read them together. Matthew 11, 27 through 30. Matthew 11, 27 through 30. Listen to this. All things, Jesus speaking, have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So no one's going to know the Son, no one knows the Father except the Son, and then no one's going to know the Father except whomever the Son chooses to reveal Him. What does that tell you? God's sovereign over salvation, divine sovereignty. But then look at the very next verse, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, which is it? That's human responsibility. You must come to me. If you, are you labored over these things? Are you, are, uh, is it laborious? Are you heavy laden? You want rest? I will give it to you. You can take my yoke upon you. You can learn from me. But ultimately, what? You must come to me. And so you see that ultimately you can't come to him unless God draws you. But then you're not going to, if you don't come, you're not going to receive it. So you see God's sovereignty, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Listen to John chapter 6. We're going to be there in a few weeks as we study through John. John 6, 35 and 37. You're going to see ultimately right at the start, you're going to see God's sovereignty. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me, I mean, you see uh, uh, human responsibility. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that, uh, but I, but I said to you that you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Human responsibility, right? But then look at verse, that was 35 and 36. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What? So I need to believe, but then uh, only those who the Father gives to me will come to me, and then, but when they, the Father gives them to me and they come to me, I won't cast them away. How do we square these? And it continues on. John, same chapter, John 6, 44 through 47. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from the Father. He has seen the Father. All this is speaking of what? This is what God's going to do. You're going to come to me when I draw you. But then verse 47, the very next verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. But then you just say that it's only God can draw us. And now you're saying that we're supposed to believe. Isn't this the same imagery and the same discussion that was happening in John chapter 3? You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You can't control it. You can't make it happen. But ultimately, if it happens, then guess what? You will believe. John 6, verse 63 through 69. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, our earthly flesh, is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So who gives life? Who gives a new birth? The Spirit does. Is the flesh any help at all? What does the Bible say? None. So what can man do? Nothing. So who's the work? Divine sovereignty. But then look at verse 64, the very next verse. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who, those who were... Uh, those, those were who did not believe and those it was who would betray him. So he's speaking of Judas here, right? Even Judas was right there and Jesus knew what was in his heart, just like he knew with Nicodemus or even those in John chapter 2. Verse 65, it's man's responsibility, but you don't believe. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, you've got this back and forth, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Now we're getting verse 65. Divine sovereignty. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now look into verse 66. He's going let's flip-flop back to human responsibility again. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away as well? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Jesus says, do you want to leave me as well? No, we've come to believe in you. We believe in you. We are, we are actively pursuing you. We are trusting in you. And so you see human responsibility right alongside divine sovereignty as we're walking through this particular passage. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus, now this is Peter preaching at Pentecost. And he's preaching to the, the Jews where 3,000 will be saved. And he says, this Jesus delivered up to the, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What does that tell you? Divine sovereignty, right? Jesus was handed over. Right? To be crucified, to be murdered, over, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But now listen, that's, that's, all, that's only half the verse. Right? You see divine sovereignty. Now look at human responsibility. That you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Human responsibility. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, right? So all these people were gathered together, 
the Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, peoples of Israel were gathered against Jesus, right, to crucify him. And then here, but look at the verse 28. That was verse 27. That was human responsibility. Now look at divine sovereignty. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Divine sovereignty. Now it's, it's all throughout the scripture. Again and again. Even in our sanctification. Listen to this. Colossians 1, 27 through 29. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, in, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right? So that, what does that tell you? God's sovereign. To, him, to them God chose to make known the mystery. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of, the glory of this mystery, which is, in Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that's divine sovereignty. And then listen to verse 28. Paul preaching here to the Colossians. Him, Jesus, we proclaim... Right, so that's what Paul's doing. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling. This is I labor, struggling. What does that tell you? All about human responsibility, right? We're proclaiming Jesus. We're warning people. We're teaching people. We're, pre- we're try- trying to present everyone mature in Christ. I'm laboring. I'm toiling. I'm struggling over this. This is what Paul is doing. Human responsibility. But then he's not finished with the verse. With all his energy, with all Christ's energy, that he powerfully works within me. Divine sovereignty again. Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean earn it. It means... It's a, a picture there of if something's been deposited, like there's gold in, in, a, in a field, and you're having to mine out the gold. That's what it's talking about. So it's not saying earn your salvation or work it out in some kind of like works-based religion. It's saying God has deposited treasure in you. Work it out. What would I tell you? Human responsibility. But then look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what God is doing in us. Right? And so we need to see both pictures because here's, here's where it, goes, it gets frayed. Okay? Here's the dangers. Let me give you both ditches. Because this is where people don't see them both. And it's because they either hone in on one side or the other side. And they don't see both parallel tracks. The, the train won't run. It will not run if both tracks aren't laid. We end up in ditches either way. So you, you camp out only on the sovereignty of God and you don't realize that God is the one who works and wills to accomplish his purpose in us and that he does want us to do some things that you'll be like a hyper-Calvinist and you won't do any work because God's going to save those he wills. And yet we'll completely be devoid of all the biblical commands in the Bible that he tells us that we should be making disciples. So that's one ditch, right? You're camping out too much on the sovereignty of God and not understand there is human responsibility as this, and all those, that's why I took all this time. I wasn't trying to show off knowledge or confuse you. I just want you to see that as we're walking through John 3 and a passage that's going to absolutely undermine uh, any attempt to earn or merit salvation, that in that divine sovereignty, he couples human responsibility right alongside of it. But then let me tell you where most Southern Baptist churches are. We're way over here in the kiddie pool. And it's all about what we do and we're not trusting God for, for much work. And so we try to entertain people 
And we try to encourage them to come because we don't really believe the truth of God's word that it's powerful and it's able to redeem sinners. It's able to transform our lives in such a way that, uh, that others will begin to see Christ in us. We can see how we parent different, how our relationships are different, how our marriages are different, how our work ethic is different, how we begin to treat people, how we don't gossip or we don't complain and we're full of joy and we're full of peace. And not just that, we don't just give them all the byproducts as if like you should come to Jesus for peace. You should come to Jesus for a better marriage. You should come to Jesus for better sex. You should come to Jesus for better children. You should come to Jesus for more money. And that's all that we've been preaching for decades. Come to Jesus for stuff. And this is exactly what John 2 is saying. Jesus would not entrust to those type of false converts. Why? He knows what's in us. He knows what's in your mind right now. And you may be thinking, he needs to hurry. Why is he shouting at me? Right? It can be a myriad of things. But he knows what you're thinking right now. And he's not impressed by our religious activity. He's going, you're not going to love me. Unless I do something to you first. You think, well, then how do we couple these? How do we couple these? How can man be held responsible? How can man be held responsible if God must act upon him first? And if you're feeling that tension, that's a good tension because that, you know what that means? You're paying attention. That's a good tension. Because you're actually interacting with what the Bible is talking about. You're actually interacting with what the Bible teaches. And this is exactly what this passage is. And this is why Nicodemus struggled so much. Why Nicodemus couldn't quite wrap his head around it. He goes, man, I, I have been striving for righteousness my entire life. Despite the fact, despite the fact that I'm, I think I'm already in because I'm, a, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob's name was later changed, his name was later changed to Israel. That's where the children of Israel came from. And I'm a direct descendant of his. I should be getting in the promised land simply because of my heritage, right? Right? Wrong. Oh, you don't have to hold your place there. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. I want to show you something back to back, and they're going to couple these together. And I will do it quickly because I want you to see this as it relates to this particular passage. I'm not going to do a full exegesis on Romans 9, so don't worry. I'm, I just want to point out these things so you can be able to see it because some of the questions that may be popping in your mind right now are going to be questions that Paul is going to answer in Romans chapter 9. Let me just keep, while you're turning, Romans chapter 9, where we're going to read, and we're going to begin in verse 1. I just want to walk you through this really rapidly, okay? So as we think this, but I want you just to be able to see this. Romans is a book that was written by the Apostle Paul, who was a former Pharisee, that is just like Nicodemus. And by the way, just so you know, Nicodemus, we believe, does get saved. He'll show up again two more times in the gospel according to John. We'll point those out to you. He shows up on the scene after Jesus' crucifixion at one of the worst times ever, and Nicodemus is on the scene. So I believe after this conversation, Nicodemus was born again at some point. I'm not that I have the eyes of God, but that's what I believe the scriptures are. I believe that's why he's alluded to at the very last, near the last chapters of John itself. Uh, but ultimately, like Nicodemus, Paul was a Pharisee, had, was a part of this apostate Judaism, right? And so as a result of this, out trying to earn their own righteousness. And so he's, uh, he's, he's writing, coming out of that background, to the church in Rome, upon which he's never been. And he's writing to them, and he wants to make sure they get the gospel. Make sure they get the gospel. So if anywhere tells you that pastors shouldn't preach the gospel to churches, uh, that's how we have the New Testament. He's writing to churches. He's writing to Christians. And so uh, Romans 1 through 8 is a picture of the gospel in, like, full form, just... Uh, much explanation, much detail, much description about what the gospel is and how it transforms the life. And you get to the end of Romans 8, and just 
it's amazing because at the end of this, he starts talking about like how beautiful it is to be a part of the body of God. And he's beginning to talk to him about all these bedrock promises, right? About, uh, I'll just read a few. What shall we say then? Is, uh, uh, let me skip down. I'll just skip down. Um, okay, what can we, so we say to these things, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how he would not with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Those that God has chosen. It is God who justifies, declares us righteous. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. He who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. At that point, you should be like, yes. Look at these amazing promises that were given to the church. But then listen to the interesting way that the Holy Spirit led Paul to think about this. He says, now, but they may begin to question whether or not these promises can be trusted. They may just be able to question whether these promises are trusted because guess what? God had given a lot of promises and a lot of principles to whom? The children of Israel, right? And they killed the Messiah. And the gospel went to the Gentiles is why it went to Rome to begin with. So what about all the promises that were to, to Israel? And if God's not going to keep his promises to Israel, then how do we know if these promises he's right to us to be kept? That's a good question, Paul. That's where he begins in, in chapter 9. That's why I wanted to show you that. Romans 9, 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why do you have great sorrow and unce- unceasing anguish in your heart, Paul? For I can wish that I myself were a curse sent to hell and cut off from, my, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I wish that I, that I would go to hell so that my, my Israelite brothers could go to heaven. Wow. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Hey, listen, if it wasn't for this rights, Jesus wouldn't have come. But then listen to this. Remember, the question would then be like, well, then if, if God didn't keep his word to the Israelites, then he won't keep his word to us. Well, here's what Paul answers in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Oh, don't start thinking the word of God shouldn't be trusted. For not, all are who, not, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, uh, not, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that, not, that, this, this, means that this is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For what is the promise? Uh, for, what, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. So he says, listen, it's not about being a child of Abraham. It's about being, about being a child of Isaac. And then he gives the illustration about the two children that Abraham had, Isaac and Jacob. And typically the older would be the one that was going to be the one that would be served. That would be Esau. 
But no, God chose the younger to show forth his purpose of election. And so as a result of that, that ultimately this is the picture here. You're not a child of Israel just because you're a descendant. You're a child of Israel if you have, if you're by faith, place your faith and trust in Jesus. This is what God has been saying the whole time, and they adopted the wrong understanding. And so then, so then ultimately, think about this for a moment. If you go back to verse 11, what's taking place? Divine sovereignty. Though they were not yet born, uh, Isaac and I mean uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, though neither was born and neither had done either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of choosing or election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, him who was chosen. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now here's the question, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God just, does he hate people? By no means. For he, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that in my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so that he who has he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? That was the question we asked a few minutes ago, was not how can God still have find fault with us if ultimately he's the one who has to change us? For who can resist his will? Verse 19. Now, how does God answer that? How does God respond to us? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You don't know God's mind. His ways are not our ways. His purposes are not ours. His his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. Here's what we know the Bible says. God does not sin. God does no evil. God does only kindness. He is love. He's the very epitome and definition of love you say but how can god still find fault with us who can resist his will but who are you a man to answer back to god well what is molded say to its molder why have you made me like this has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use what if desiring to show his wrath and to make his, his known his power um what if god desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, right? And so this whole point, he's just walking through, that man, God chooses to do what he wills to do, and we don't know who's, whom he's chosen, whom he's not chosen, right? And so ultimately we can say that God is un, unjust and God is not good, but ultimately we would be lying. And all this is showing forth what? In Romans 9, divine sovereignty. Now, at that point, you would think, once again, you'd camp out over here with a hyper-Calvinist and say, well, then we shouldn't do anything. God's just going to do it all, right? And he's going to save whom he wills, and it's going to happen as he wills. But is that where Paul ends up? He's asking the same questions you and I would ask. Is that where Paul ends up? No, look at Romans 10. Romans 10. Now, you're going to see divine, I mean, human responsibility. A whole chapter on divine sovereignty. Now, look at human responsibility. The very next chapter. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my desire, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. What is he doing? And he has desires in his heart that people would be saved. He already said in Romans 9, he wished he could go to hell so others could go to heaven. And so he says, ultimately, I want them to go to heaven. And so I'm praying for that. It's my desires. And I'm praying that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He says, look, they're trying to earn and work their own merit. Doesn't that sound like Nicodemus? Doesn't that sound like Paul? They don't know. They're trying to come up with their own desires, their own plans. 
For four, for, it is Christ, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Now you see the, the sovereignty, or the, uh, the, uh, man, the human responsibility there, right? And so then he, he can, you know, verse for sake of time, I'm going to skip, skip down to verse 8. Begins to talk about the, the, the scriptures here, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So they're proclaiming the gospel. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So what does that tell you? Human responsibility, human responsibility, human responsibility. When your eyes are open, when God does draw you, ultimately your eyes will see that you're sinful and that you need a Savior, and ultimately that God has sent that Savior in the form of Jesus, that Jesus lived a perfect life, lived a life that we could it in perfect obedience and humility and submission to God, died the death that we deserve to make, to make punishment for sinners on the cross, that whoever then would confess Him as Lord, to say, ultimately, you're my boss, you're my master, you're my teacher, I submit to you, I'm no longer running the show. Why? Because I've made a mess of my life. I've tried to do it on my own, and it's not gone well. And now then you can, out of that change of heart, your mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says, right? And so in the heart is where this is taking place, and then ultimately the mouth confesses. Verse 10, for, one, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Now here's the key. Where does Paul take this, this issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility? For every, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him who they've not believed? They need to believe. Remember, he said they were ignorant. Somebody needs to go tell them. How will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel or preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed, uh, who has believed what he has, he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And so you see these pictures. They're both there. Fundamental doctrines of the faith, right? Side by side. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, side by side. God must do it, but then man's responsible to share and man's responsible to repent and believe. Pastor, how do you reconcile these things? I don't. I can't. I don't know how God does it. And I'm okay with that. People have tried to mess these things together, and there are probably much better explanations than I've given this morning without question. But the reality is, you try to... to they, they don't need harmony because they're, they're best of friends. They don't need to be reconciled because they, they are riding one with, with each other. They're side by side. And that's why I took all the time to give you all the scripture references. And verse after verse after verse, they're laid side by side. And guess what the Bible does it try to do? Explain it away. Where should that leave us? And this is, this is the whole point, biblical response to the gospel. I know there's much more to preach, but this is the point that I want you to see. And you think, man, all this was a setup for this one point. And, but if you catch this point, you will worship God. Okay? Where, where does God want us to end with all of this? Where does God want us to understand all of this that he's been teaching us about human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Go over one more chapter, Romans 11. I'll show you three verses and we're done. Romans 11, beginning in verse 33, and we're going to read 33, 34, and 35. And I just want to show you this, and, I, and, I, and hopefully a light bulb is going to go off and you're just, it's, it's going to be great, right? Romans 11, 33, 35. Paul continues on 
about the remnant of Israel as he's walking through the Gentiles being grafted in, the mystery of Israel's salvation and all of this is where Romans 11 is walking us through. And look at Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Just let this sink in. I can't even try to attempt to explain to you how divine sovereignty and human responsibility work in, in conjunction. I don't know. I can give you a variety of definitions. I can, but I mean, I don't know the mind of God. And I just stand with Paul. As Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How searchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You just can't figure them out. Why did God choose me? I don't know. Why did God choose me and not choose some of my family members up to this point? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's clearly not because of me. I promise. For who has, the mind, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's telling God what he needs to know? What, who's telling God anything that he doesn't already know? Or who has given him a gift, given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who's a debtor to God? None of us. Right? God, or who's made God a debtor to us? None of us. None of us have, have given a gift to God that we, now he owes us anything. Why, why, why is that? Really important, Pastor. You said that this would just come alive. When you reach this point, when you begin to realize there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but when God changes your heart, you will cry out to Him. You, when He puts a new birth in you and ultimately you want Him, you will cry out for salvation. You will see your sinfulness. You will see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of your own sin and the sinfulness of everyone's sin. You'll see the righteousness of Christ, which you need in order to be born again, and you will respond. And this good news requires a response. It's not like watching the 6 o'clock news where ultimately you just, you just realize all this havoc and all this pandemonium, all this mayhem, and then at the end of it you're just like, oh, oh well, and you go to sleep. The herald of the, of the sovereign king in the old days, when there would be a sovereign over it, the herald would come and to give the report. And ultimately what would happen? When he gives a message to people, hear you, hear you, a message from the king, it wasn't just like the 6 o'clock news that you can just turn off and turn on and it need not, it need not matter to your life. When the herald preached a message from the sovereign, from the king, you must understand what the king wanted you to know. And that news was important. And this is the message of the herald of the gospel. It matters, this information. And it warrants a response. And those who are being called will respond. You said, well, Pastor, what's the big takeaway? When you understand how small we are and how God flattens us with the understanding of divine sovereignty... And man can't come whenever they want. We won't be manipulative. We won't be coercive. We're not going to try to make things happen. We're going to pray that God changes our hearts. I'm praying every night. Every night, every night, every night before I go to bed, I'm praying with my children, praying for my children, that God would open up their hearts, would transform their minds, and they might be born again. And they have a deep love for Jesus that will not, that will not go away that will tarry, that will persist, that will continue. Why? Because there are many a false convert who receives, supposedly receives Christ and then falls away, showing that they were never truly born again. And they, they don't know Christ. And then how do those people live their life? Last question, I'll answer it and we'll be done. How do those people live their life? They live their life. This is the takeaway. This is, this is the key. They live their life as if God is small, and the people and the circumstances and the situations in their life are big. 
Catch that? When you have a shallow understanding of who Jesus is, you have a shallow understanding of who God is, and not understand these two weighty doctrines that I can't really help you to reconcile, to process them really well, right? Because it's just God's way, how inscrutable are his ways. You know what that does for me? It's how big God is. He's huge. His ways are not my ways. His mind's so much higher than mine. And you know what that does for me? Gives me confidence. I can take this gospel anywhere on this planet, preach this gospel truthfully, biblically, carefully, thoughtfully, and God's going to redeem people. He's going to save them. Because why? I got a big God. And the people that I come across, the antagonism, the, the difficulties, the situations, financial pressures, all these other things, don't mean anything to me. You know why? Because they're small in comparison to my big God. But you know why we're anxious and we're worried and we freak out all the time and we're on uh, all types of medicine to help us to try to navigate through life? It's because... All the problems are really big, and our God's really puny. And that's why we need to study things like this. That's why Jesus wrecked, literally wrecked Nicodemus with these teachings. His whole life, everything that he had done at the point, everything he'd scaled, the, 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 uh, I don't have time to this, but the history on Nicodemus, one of the wealthiest men in Israel at that particular time, maybe top three, wealthiest of Israel. And it was rubbish. It did not matter because why? He was going to die and he was going to go to hell. Even though he thought he was an Israelite with all the promises, with all the teaching, with all the status, all the money, all the everything. And he had nothing in the eyes of the one that mattered. Because why? Jesus was small in his eyes. I'm just going to use him to get what I need. And Jesus says, oh, you, you don't need to use me. You need me. You need everything that I am or you don't get in. Takeaway for us, men and women. Do we have that type of urgency? Does it lead us to pray? Does it lead us to share? Does it lead us to be concerned with those that we love and those who are around us and those who, who are with us? Friends, coworkers, family members, neighbors, you name it. They need to be born again. And how will they know if there's not a preacher who tells them they're ignorant and they need to know the gospel? And we pray and we share. If that's you this morning, you've never been saved. I'm going to pray that God opens your eyes. He transforms your heart and life. I'll be available afterwards the service. Pastor Tim will come up here in the mix to give some announcements and introduce some new members. He, he'll be available. And we're going to share the truth with you. We're not going to manipulate you. We're not going to coerce you. We're not going to try to make you pray some prayer. Man, we, we, you need to be born again. We can't make that happen. And if that is you, go with this gospel. And share with people who need this truth. Because there's many a person who's just like Nicodemus. Many a person who's just like Matthew was or like I was. Who've made some kind of false conversion at an early age. And thinks they're okay. And yet their life betrays the very words they speak. And they need somebody to tell them the gospel. Just like Jesus did to Nicodemus. Just like Paul did to the church at Rome. And just like I'm doing this morning. And there's a myriad of people that God's placed in your sphere of influence who need you to share the gospel. Father, thank you for your